Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter, excuse me, enter your houses to strike you. Verse 24, you shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. When you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, well, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and they worshiped. The people of Israel went and they did. As Moses. Exodus chapter 12, 1 through 51. You are free because someone died. You are free because someone died. You might imagine it this way. Maybe you've seen some of these videos on the interwebs or the internets. Somebody gets a heart transplant. They're on the heart transplant list. They get a heart transplant. I don't know if you've seen these videos where the family of the person who made the donation of the heart has the opportunity to come and using a stethoscope listen to the heart of their loved one that was donated. Have you seen these? You'll sob like a baby, so if you haven't, you're welcome. But go, they're, fun, they're fantastic to watch. So somebody loses a child or a spouse in a tragic way, but having the foresight to be on the donor list, their heart is then donated to someone who needs it, and now their heart of their loved one is still beating in another a person that person might say in a very literal way i live because someone died and what we discover in exodus is this is a theme for the people of israel but frankly it's the theme of the bible we are free because someone died people of israel are still servants and slaves in the land of egypt uh, nine or ten plagues have already happened now we're down to the final plague the Passover plague or the the plague of the death angel as you might uh, call it and what the is intended to be communicated to the people of Israel is that you are going to be free but you're not just being made free you are being free because someone uh, has died interesting back in the 80s and 90s there was a significant upheaval because of the drug trade out of South America to the United States. And as a result, down in South and Central America, drug cartels had uh, massive amounts of power and control in these areas. And what they would do is they would kidnap people who were sort of anti-drug trade. They would kidnap them and take them to their outposts, which were often out in the middle of the jungle. And the whole idea of kidnapping these journalists and advertisers and political figures was to send the message, don't oppose the drug cartels because you'll be kidnapped. And they would also ransom them off as a way of uh, making money. 
And where they would keep them is in these uh, fortresses or these compounds deep in the jungle, and it was great security. They said, if you run away, we're not going to chase you because the jungle will kill you. There's no way to get out of this jungle because the people wouldn't know where they were. And so what would happen is the military would go in and they would seek to free the hostages, but as you might expect, the drug cartels, as soon as they saw the military, they'd go and just slaughter all the hostages. They'd just kill them all. So the only way to get the hostages out is if they would run out into the jungle. But the hostages, of course, are too scared to run out into the jungle, and they couldn't get the message to them. The military is just two or 300 yards away. You can't see them. But if you'll run out into the jungle, the military will be there and take you to safety. But no, of course, nobody would go. Why? Because they'll die in the jungle. They don't know they're out there. How do we get the message to the hostages to run out in the jungle? It's a hard message. So they came up with a novel plan. They wrote a, a song that was played on popular radio, and the drug cartels would play the radio because that's the only entertainment you have out in the middle of the jungle. And so they wrote a song that became very popular and embedded in one chorus of the song was a drum beat that was Morse code. And this is what the message said in Morse code. 19 people rescued, you're next, don't lose hope. And that's all it said. And hundreds of people heard that message and fled into the jungle and were rescued. I mean, it's unbelievable. I don't think I could hear Morse code if that's all that was playing. <laughs> Most of the people who were captured and hostages were military-type folks, so they heard it. So here's the thing. You are free because someone died, and the message of the Passover and the message of redemption is you need to survive in the land of death. The people of Israel find themselves in the land of death, Egypt. Why is Egypt the land of death, the land under the curse of God? Because they had rejected God. Moses had brought them peace with God. They rejected it. And so now the Bible says the angel is going to come and kill the firstborn in each home. And your job, here's the message, survive the land of death and flee into the wilderness. And so the story is very simple. He says on the night of the Passover... You're going to kill a lamb, and you're going to eat a lamb, and you're going to smear the blood on the doorposts. Now, this is the first 20 verses of Exodus 12, and there's a lot of things that they were supposed to do. In fact, first of all, they were supposed to get the lamb on, not on the night of the Passover, but four days earlier. So Passover is on the 14th of the month, and they're to select the lamb on the 10th of the month, keep the lamb for four days, and on the 14th at twilight slaughter the lamb, drain its blood into a basin, which they would have all been used to doing. Then you're to prepare the lamb to eat. And the only way you're to prepare the lamb is to roast it. You're to roast it over the fire. And the reason for this is the fastest way of cooking. He says you're not to boil it. You're not to make a stew. You're not to eat it raw. You're to roast it over the fire with bitter herbs. And you're going to eat the whole thing. And before too long, in fact, right away, put blood on the doorposts. And while you're eating, put your coat on, put your shoes on, put your cell phone on your belt, be ready to go. Now, nobody would ever eat this way. In fact, eating was one of the ways that they spent their time. They didn't watch Netflix. They didn't surf the web. They sat around eating and, and chatting. He says, you're not going to eat like that. Stand up at the table with your belt tied in, ready to go, your shoes on, eating as fast as you can, anything you don't finish, you're going to burn up. 
you're not going to take with you. The only thing you're going to take with you is bread with no yeast in it. What he's saying to them is, you're going to leave, and you're going to need to leave in a hurry. Everything about the Passover is intended to communicate to them, be ready to go and make great haste. You are free because someone died. Who died? In this case, their lamb that they slaughtered. So what you must do is survive the land of death and make haste and leave. What they need to understand by slaughtering this lamb is this. The land of Egypt is under judgment. And to escape that judgment, somebody must die in my place. In this case, a lamb will do. So slaughtering a lamb is a way of saying out loud, because I'm in Egypt and Egypt is a land under judgment, it should be my blood on the doorpost. But God, by his mercy, has determined I don't have to put my blood on the doorpost. I can put a lamb's blood on the doorpost instead of mine. And so Passover is intended to be an act that both generates in Israel a, a feeling of faith and fear. Faith that says, I can trust God who has provided for a way for me to escape the land of death. Fear, why? Wait, God kills sinners? He's not messing around? He really, he really does put Egypt under judgment because they have rejected him? And the answer is what? Well, yes. Now, the means of escape brings faith. God will indeed judge those who have rejected him, but he does, in fact, provide the means of redemption. And in this case, he says, put blood on the doorpost. He says, you're free because someone died. You must survive the land of death by faith, applying blood to the doorpost. I guess in many ways you could say this. You can put whoever's blood you want on the doorpost. You can put your own. It makes it hard to leave Egypt if you're dead. Or you can put someone else's. You can put the lamb's blood on the doorpost. Here's what's interesting. You can fall down to verse 19 of Exodus 12. They're going to establish over time, especially when they get into the wilderness and in the promised land, they would observe the Passover every year. And this is what he says about that festival. You're going to celebrate it for seven days. No yeast is to be in your houses. Anyone who eats yeast gets in big trouble. And these, all these things apply to whether he is a sojourner or a native in the land. What, what did he just say? What matters? Is it whether or not you're Jewish? No. What matters? Did you put blood on the doorpost? The Bible is not terribly clear on this. If an Egyptian put blood on his doorpost, would he be spared? It's quite clear they would be. It's not if you're Jewish and you're obedient, you get saved. It's if you trust God to allow someone else to stand for you, you will be redeemed out of the land of judgment. In fact, look down at verse 38 of Exodus 12 if you're turned there. It says this, a mixed multitude went up with them with very much livestock and flocks and herds. A mixed multitude. What does that mean? A whole bunch of people. Now, Egypt was full of Egyptians. Obviously, had people of Israel, had Cushites, had people from northern Africa, had people from what we call the Arabian Peninsula because it was the center of economic activity. And so you got people who aren't Egyptian and maybe many Egyptians, and you got, again, hang out in Egypt. How's that look? Not a whole lot left at this point. 
or we can hang out with the people who have the power and hand of God. And a whole bunch of people, a mixed multitude says, we're going to be with the people of God. So what matters here is not their national heritage. What matters is, does God redeem when he sees the blood? And when, when he sees the blood, what is the answer? Yes, he says, I will pass over you because another has died for you. The only way to survive the land of death is to trust that you can be free because someone else died. The trick is we have to have ears to hear that message, like those captors down in Central America where that song plays, and it says, don't worry, have hope, but we have to have the ability to hear it. We have to have the ability to hear the message that says, go, escape the land of death by following God's ways. There's no life in this place. And as you know, many Egyptians didn't, didn't do that. As we're going to read in the next section, there was not a home in Egypt that did not have someone who hadn't died. Down a little bit further, we're reminded that during the Passover, they're supposed to make sure as they're eating the lamb, not to break any of the bones. It's a little bit down further in Exodus 12. They say, make sure not to break any of the bones. That's a very strange command. Number one, why would they normally, I don't know, maybe to get after some of the really good meat, maybe to get at the marrow. But what he says is don't break any bones. And he said, that's a little bit of a random command, but as time goes on, we're going to discover it wasn't uh, a passing comment. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm 34 tells us this in regard uh, to his man. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. The Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps them all, and not one of them, he keeps all his bones, I should say, and not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. He keeps all of his bones, that is, his righteous one, all of his bones, and none of them will be broken. And John 19, 36 makes it quite clear. The apostle John was convinced that when Jesus was on the cross and the Roman guards went to break their, his legs, what happened? Because what they would do is they would crucify people and then they'd realize they had a party to get to and the people weren't dying fast enough. And so the Romans would break their legs and the people hanging on the cross couldn't hold themselves up and they would drown in their own lungs. And so they went to Jesus to break his legs and what did they discover? He was already dead. Why? Because Jesus decides when he's going to die. The Romans don't. So he had already died and so they went and they were going to break Oh, he's already dead. Well, let's make sure. So they stick him with a spear. And what happens is they don't break any of his bones. And John says, this is in order to fulfill the prophecy of Psalms. And why was Psalms written? Because Jesus is the Passover lamb. Because Jesus' blood can stand in our place. We get two options in the land of judgment. We can stand in our own and say, oh, you can use my blood, I'll pay for it. Or Jesus says, you can use my blood... Because I am the ultimate Passover lamb. And this is the song that's been playing ever since in the camp that we find ourselves in, this world. The gospel, Jesus comes and saves sinners. And there's a code in there. It's not a very complicated code. It just says, if you've disobeyed God, then you need forgiveness. And then you might ask the question, well, how do I know if I've 
disobeyed God. I'll show you. It's a very spiritual and religious way you can determine that. Take these two fingers and put them here. And if there's a heartbeat, you're a sinner. And you need to be forgiven. Here's the thing. Most say, no, I don't. Most say, okay, yeah, I mean, I blew it a couple of times, but I don't do anything that requires a guy to die on a cross. It seems a little bit excessive. You're missing the music. You're, you're hearing a song, but you've missed the message. Because what he says, if you will come to the point where you can say, you know what? No, God has no reason to have a relationship with me. I, I'm lost. He says, okay, good. The blood can stand for you. You can, instead of paying on your own behalf, you can have him stand in for you. But you have to hear it. You have to believe it. You have to trust it. You are free because someone died. The job is to survive the land of death. The only way to do that is to say, don't, I don't want to pay with my blood. I want somebody else to pay. For Israel, that was the Passover land. That was merely a way of God starting to set, beginning in some ways to set the stage to say, you're going to need a better lamb. But you can, we can set the, the tone right now. Someone can and will stand in for you. Will you hear the message of hope and apply the blood of Christ to your own heart? You are free because someone died. Second thing is this, leave the land of death. Okay, first of all, we've got to survive it. Second thing here is leave it. Now, you may not realize this. In the Civil War, uh, they had POW camps. Of course, you would anticipate they would have POW camps. Here's what's astounding about the Civil War POW camps. If you know anything about it, you know where I'm going. 56,000 soldiers died in the POW camps in the Civil War. That's 10% of all casualties. One of the bloodiest wars that our nation has faced, and 10% of the casualties were in POW camps. What did most of them die of in the POW camps? Starvation. You're not going to want to, but Google some pictures of Civil War soldiers in POW camps. It's not pretty. Americans starving other Americans. There's a long reason why this happened, but it shouldn't have. So here's the thing. The war ends, and a guy on Thursday is in a POW camp, either starving to death or dying of some disease because they way overpopulated his camps. There was no clean water. Some of these camps in the northern part of the country, they barely had a tent. I don't know if you've been in Illinois in the winter, but you need some covering. The wind chill there this morning, I think, was minus 7 in Chicago. Then, all of a sudden, the war ends, and these guys are free. They can go back home. The war's over. There's peace. Now, wouldn't it be ridiculous if the guys in the POW camp said, you know what we ought to do? Let's just fix up the camp. Let's just make the camp nicer. The problem isn't that we need to leave. The problem is we just need to improve the conditions here. What would you say to those guys? You're an idiot. That's what you would say to them. Get out of the camp. Well, this is what happens. You are free because someone died, and now you must leave it. Now he's going to tell the people of Israel, like we said before, eat with your coat on. Eat your lamb uh, standing up with your sandals on, and be ready to go when it happens. Look at Exodus uh, 12, 21. Exodus, excuse me, 12, uh, 21. He says this. The Lord's going to pass, this is down verse 23, the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. When he, when he sees the, the blood on the doorposts, the Lord's going to pass over 
and he's not going to strike your house. Then down in verse 29, it finally happens. At midnight, the Lord struck down the firstborn of all in the land of Egypt. Any who didn't have the blood on their doorpost, there was not a house missing the blood that did not have someone dead. And then what happens, Pharaoh calls Moses, or at least sends his representative to Moses in the middle of the night when this is discovered, and what does he say to him? Get out. Not in a minute, not in a bit, not in the morning, not when you're ready. Get out of Egypt and leave immediately. You are free because someone died, and now in the land of death, in freedom, he is saying, don't live to make yourself comfortable in Egypt. Live to get out. Leave in haste. Now, when hurricanes hit, I don't know if you remember when Hurricane Katrina hit, a lot of people didn't leave, and unfortunately, a lot of people died because they didn't leave New Orleans. They did some studies on why people didn't leave New Orleans and other uh, disaster areas when, um, well, when hurricanes show up. And here in the Pacific Northwest, we say, why do you live on the Gulf Coast? But it's warm when it's cold here, I guess. Here's the thing. Most of us, as we're sitting watching the news and we're going, those, why aren't you leaving? Duh, leave, the hurricane's coming. Well, they discover most people didn't stay because they were unintelligent. Most people stayed because they had to choose between dying there or dying somewhere else. Many who didn't leave basically were afraid if they left, they would die while they were gone. Many didn't have the resources or family to go to. Essentially, they would be homeless for who knows how long. And the thought is, why not stay here and risk it out in my home rather than die under an overpass somewhere else? Because there's nowhere to go. There's no family to go to. Others were afraid their, their entire livelihood was in their home and they knew it would be destroyed or looters would come in. Still others had no family, had no friends, had no connection, and they did not have the physical ability to leave. Now, the police and the military could get to so many houses, they couldn't get to everyone. It, so the idea here is, listen, death is coming to Egypt, and what needs to happen now is you need to go. You need to leave the land of Egypt and get to somewhere else. You need to eat your Passover lamb in haste. As soon as the Lord gives your opening, you're to walk away. You're going to walk out. You're to burn the Passover lamb and not take the leftovers. The Bible says they went out into the wilderness in haste, some 600,000 men plus their families, with no provisions. They didn't even have dinner packed, other than their unleavened bread that they would eat and cook on the way. Don't have second thoughts. Don't think Egypt is okay. Don't hang out. Don't try to make the best of it. Get out of the land of death. Now they did, but we're going to discover in the coming chapters in Exodus, they're going to regret that decision. They're going to complain to Moses over and over, oh, we wish we would have died in Egypt. Oh, wasn't it great when we were slaves in Egypt and we could eat meat and free fish and free cucumbers? We talked cu about cucumbers at length last week. We didn't, but we mentioned it. They're going to say, oh, we wish we were back in the land of judgment. And what we're learning here is he's saying, no, you have been made free because someone died. Now live in another place. There's another story kind of like it, which you may be familiar with. It's in Genesis 19. Uh, you can turn there if you want, uh, or I'm just going to sort of summarize the story, you, story for you. This guy's name was Lot. Lot was the nephew of Abraham. Abraham and Lot became very wealthy, so at a certain point they had to separate because the land couldn't support both of their flocks. Lot ended up living in the town of Sodom, and Sodom had a terrible reputation, and the reason it had a terrible, terrible reputation is because, well, the reputation was accurate. 
So anyway, God has determined that Sodom is now under judgment. Abraham convinces God to show mercy on Lot. Basically, can you get my nephew out? So God says to, sends two angels to get Lot and his family out of Sodom before God, Sodom destroys it. Or I'm getting my words mixed up. Before God destroys Sodom. So the angels come and visit Sodom, and of course it's a terrible situation. The men of Sodom see, seek to abuse the angels, but nonetheless they say to Lot, they say, you and your family must get out of this city. God is going to destroy it. Don't hang out here. Don't delay. Get out of the city. It is under judgment, and it's going to be destroyed. So morning was dawning. The angels said this to Lot. This is Genesis 19.15. Get up. Same thing Pharaoh says to Moses. Take your wife, your two daughters who are here, and get out of the city. Verse 16. But he lingered. Isn't that amazing? God has told him by his angels the city's about to be nuked. Lot lingered. Finally, the two men, these angels, seized him and his wife and his daughters by the hand, and they dragged him out of the city. He said, this city is under judgment. You've got to get out of this city. And as they were bringing them out, they escaped. But this happens. The sun had risen up, and the Lord was raining down sulfur on, and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Gomorrah, maybe even some kind of volcanic activity, was basically turning them into um, ash. And as they were leaving, verse 26 of, of Genesis 19, Lot's wife looked back and she turned into a pillar of salt. Now, long story, that seemed, that's very strange. Wouldn't you agree? Why a pillar? Why a pillar of salt? I mean, why not a pillar of jello? I, I, maybe it would melt in the sun, I don't know. But here's the point of what happened. She didn't merely just look back like many of us would. I wonder what that looks like. Obviously, somebody looked back. The Bible describes it. The issue is not that she took a passing glance. The issue is she turned around and she, she's, that's where I want to be. God has destroyed the only thing I value. Her heart yearned for the place that was under judgment. And what we're discovering in, in Exodus is God is saying, Leave Egypt in haste. Don't let your heart be drawn back to the land of judgment, the land of death. Egypt is a dying land. Egypt is a prison. The doors are open. Don't stay in the prison with the doors open and seek to fix it up. Egypt doesn't need fixing at that point. What it needs is for you to leave, and God's judgment will be on it. Jesus said it this way over in the book of Matthew. As he was preparing to die on the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was with his disciples, and he uh, sat and he told his disciples, Take a uh, sit here with me, and I'm going to go pray. And so Jesus went up to the Father and he said, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not what I want to do, but instead what you want to do. So Jesus is saying, uh, this is difficult. This freedom that we're buying is going to cause me excruciating pain, both physically and spiritually. And what he's, he is struggling there, and struggling might not be the right word. He is experiencing in his person the same tensions you and I experience when we say, 
I want God's will to be done. I want to flee the land of death, and I want to do God's things, God's ways. But at the same time, that's hard. The people of Israel experienced it when they left Egypt. They didn't get very long, and they begin yearning once again for those things of Egypt that brought them comfort and peace. And what God is saying is you're free because someone died. Jesus took on himself the cup of our suffering. Now that we have been made free because someone has died, this is no longer our home. The place we find ourselves living today is now the land that is under judgment, and there's only one way to escape it, for him to return or for us to join him through our passing. Now, this doesn't mean that we just sit around today and we just, well, I'm just going to sit around and wait for myself to, to either get old and pass away or get sick and die, or I'll just sit around staring out the window hoping Jesus returns. We certainly are called to obedience today as those who are living in a world that's not our home. He calls us, in fact, not to live for this world. Instead, what the Bible calls us to do is live considering ourselves not home, but ambassadors from another place. Our home is not here. We come from a different city, a different place. It's called the kingdom of God, and we haven't seen it yet. And since we're from there, we're here, and we're visitors. One passage in the Bible calls us aliens and strangers, ambassadors for the kingdom of God. So our job today, as people in the image of God, saved by the grace of God, is to convince people there's a better land. This is not the land you want to be from. What you want to be from is this other one. Our lives are lived to adorn the gospel where we live in such a way that people say, I want to be from wherever you're from because you're not from here, are you? You're weird. Now, Christians don't like to be weird, but the problem is we are. We ought to be. The opportunity of the gospel is when people look at our lives and they say, you're not as attached to this place as many are. There is... No certain hope in this world. This is a world that is passing away. It's temporary. Now, it's been around for longer than we have, but it's not going to be around forever. The only thing that will last forever is the kingdom of God in Christ. And he's saying we are free because someone died, so we must live as though we're not home here. We have to live as though we're living in haste, urgently and anxiously about the business of the kingdom of God, not seeking to reform the land under judgment. Joshua said it this way. Do you remember Joshua? He lived some 400 years before the Exodus, and he said this in Genesis 50, the last couple of verses of Genesis. He says, listen, and, and listen, by Joshua, of course I mean Joseph. You, you understood that, right? Thank you. He was a pretty high-ranking official in Egypt, had everything anybody could ever want and more. He was only in charge of basically the known world. And he said, listen, when I die, you cannot leave my bones here. Someday God's going to redeem you from this place of slavery. This is a guy who had everything, and he considered it a land of slavery. He said, when, when you leave, don't leave my remains here. Bury them with my, my parents. Bury them out of here. Get them, get, I, this is a land of bondage. Don't be fooled by the blessings of this place. We have a better place that God has promised us to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joshua. In Exodus 13, we discover Moses made sure to grab his bones on the way out of town. 
You are free because someone died. In haste, leave the land of death. It may surprise us that the mission of the kingdom of God in our hearts by the gospel is not to make this world heaven. It may bother you a little bit. You say, well, no, if the world will do things God's ways, it'll be better, right? Yes, guess what? It's still passing away. The verse where it says God at one day is going to make it new, that verse is not going to change if we fix everything. Just an aside, have we yet? I can't, I can't tell. Did we figure it out? It's been 2,000 years since Jesus resurrected from the dead. Did we get that? Hand? Okay, never mind. Okay. Um, our job is not to make this world heaven. Our job is to live in this world knowing we're our, we are from heaven. You are free because someone died. Leave the land of death. Okay, finally, last thing, last few verses of Exodus 12. Remember, keep in mind freedom from death. Here's the thing. No matter how significant God's work in our hearts and lives, over time we tend to forget the importance of it. You maybe experience something powerful at a camp as a young person, maybe at a conference uh, as, a, as an adult and that powerfully redefined and changed your life. Maybe as an adult you found Christ and it radically changed the course of your life and then it seems over the years, don't those memories and the and the power of that moment, they tend to fade over time. And what the Bible calls us to do is remember, intentionally remember our freedom that was purchased uh, by someone else. In fact, if you visit our nation's capital, uh, you will find memorials intended to impress in our minds the memories of what we've been through. You can uh, visit the Korea War Memorial, which I find uh, terribly compelling and disturbing, in fact, in many ways. You can visit the Vietnam Memorial, which is just uh, right a uh, stone's throw away from there. You can go to the Lincoln Memorial and uh, remember and imagine what he has gone through. You can go to the MLK Memorial and look at the story of his life and the struggles he did to uh, fight for freedom for everyone in our country. You can go to the World War II Memorial and remember that the, the millions of people who risked their lives and the millions of people who died to fight against tyranny. And the intention here is we got to keep these things in our mind. And, and what we're called to do is remember Christ has redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb, His Son. The, the people of Israel were called to remember you have been made free out of Egypt by the blood of the Passover Lamb. Look at verse 43 of Exodus 12, if you happen to have your still finger there. He said, this is the statute of Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But in fact, they can as long as they will be circumcised and basically be a part of the people of God by faith, uh, you will celebrate Passover. So they will select them. Once a year in the spring, they're to select a lamb on the 10th day of the month and slaughter it on the 14th day of the month. And, and then they're to observe a feast for seven days where they don't eat any yeast in their uh, bread. They're to celebrate and remember every single year that they were redeemed out of slavery by the blood of a lamb. We were in the land of death. The lamb died so we didn't have to. And so therefore, we get to live in the land of freedom. They get to leave Egypt and go to the promised land. They're to keep this in mind. They're to, to remember this. And this was a struggle for Israel throughout all of the history was to keep in mind and remember the power of the Passover. In fact, they're to do it in such a way that as they're celebrating Passover, their kids will come up to them and say, why in the world do we do this? But why are we 
Dad, we, we eat every day together. I'm just going to be honest. One period of the year for a week, you tell me I have to wear my coat at the table. And I have to leave my shoes on. That's weird, Dad. He said, I'm glad you asked. Because there was a point in our history where we were all under judgment, and we all obeyed God, and we got out of the land of slavery as fast as we could. And we're gonna, I'm going to remind you of that all the time. Every year we're going to do this, we're going to eat with our shoes on. Every year we're going to do it. we're going to eat with our coat on, and we're going to eat the lamb, and then the next day, you're going to say, do you know what is even better than roast lamb, Dad? Roast lamb sandwiches for lunch the next day. There's nothing more tasty than that. And Dad, every year you say, no, 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 not this one. Nope, we burn it up. No leftovers. No lamb sandwiches on Passover. But Dad, that doesn't make any sense. Of course it doesn't make any sense, because I want you to ask me why we don't get lamb sandwiches. So I can tell you the lamb died so we didn't have to. Now, do you think this was pretty powerful when he's talking to his oldest son? Let me tell you, Isaac. All the boys were named Isaac. You're the oldest. Can I just be honest with you? When Moses told us what to do, I thought, this guy is a kook. Listen, I tell you what, I wouldn't have done it, but I just watched for the last 10 weeks the land of Egypt being completely devastated. And then he shows up and says, kill a lamb and smear it on your door. I said, first of all, gross. And secondly, what difference does it make? And so I was sort of like, well, I don't get it. And I decided to do it. And Isaac, if I wouldn't have done it, you would have died that night. So now we trust in God because he redeemed us out of the land of the slavery. Son, if I wouldn't have listened, you would have, you'd be dead. And guess what? Your mom is the oldest too. She would have died too. I mean, could you imagine what those conversations would be like? It was to remember what they'd been saved from. Just very quickly, let's look at what Jesus had to say about this over in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Jesus was having dinner with a religious person. And there's nothing more enjoyable than that. Sarcasm. So he's eating at this Pharisee's house, boo, although we're all Pharisees, so what do we do? A woman came in who was a sinner, which is amazing that the guy writing the Bible has no idea. Oh, no, she was a sinner. Yeah, no, there's no question about it. He's not saying it in a negative fashion other than the fact that she was a sinner. And while Jesus was reclining at the table at the Pharisee's house, she brought in an alabaster jar of ointment. Uh, which would have been very expensive, and standing behind him, weeping, she uh, began to wet her, his feet with her tears, and then uh, she took her hair, which she would have had to let down if it wasn't down, and she began wiping his feet with her hair, and, and kissing his feet, and then applying the ointment to his feet. So if you want to know what that's like, do that the next time you invite somebody over for dinner. See what they say. You're like, well, no, culturally that would have been this, that, or the other. No, culturally, that's weird any culture. A lady it makes her way into a home, wipes his feet with her hair, uh, is crying on his feet, putting this ointment on her feet that presumably was purchased with money earned through her sin. Pharisee, of course, was very offended. And Jesus says this to the Pharisee. Uh, let me tell you a story. A guy had two people who owed him a debt. One owned him a whole bunch of money, and the other guy owed him very little money. He forgave both of them. Which one will be more appreciative? And the Pharisee says, 
well, the guy who owed a bunch of money will be much more appreciative. You, know, you owed him a million bucks, it's wiped out. Another guy owes 50 bucks, it's wiped out. The guy who owed a million bucks would be, man, this is great. The guy who owed a 50 bucks would be like, well, I mean, it's nice. It's not great. And Jesus says this, listen, you, you, you said this correctly. You invited me into your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears. She has wiped my feet with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time she came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. All these are very normal, standard, welcome to my home kind of things. But she has anointed my feet with her precious treasure. Therefore, I tell you, she has been forgiven, not because of her actions, but because of her faith. She recognized he forgave her, and she was overwhelmed with the forgiveness she had received. He says those who are forgiven of just a little, they're not that appreciative. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. It's not that some have sinned much, some have sinned little. It's what he's really saying is this. Some understand they have sinned much, and others are morons. And I say it that way because it's offensive, because Jesus was offending the Pharisee. She understands she has sinned a lot. You're an idiot because you don't think you've sinned a lot. Your problem is not the content of your sin. The problem is you don't think you have any because you're blind. In fact, your religion has blinded you. She sends her away. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Remember our freedom from death. Some of us think as Christians, the journey of the Christian life is to see how much of our sin we can forget and how good we can be. That's kind of it, but not really. The journey of the Christian life is to remember over and over again how much I've been saved. Why did Christians in the early church and in the New Testament, why were they called to get together once a week? What were, why are we, do we get together once a week to worship Christ? Get together on Sunday. Why? Because that's the day he was raised. Why do we do that? Because every Sunday we're supposed to get together and say, you might have had a good week this week, and so you think you're a good little Christian. We're going to get together and remind you you're not. Your sins killed the Savior. And you say, well, that seems depressing. It's only depressing if his grace ever runs out. However, if by discovering the immensity of our need, we discover that his grace outweighs it, we don't go into despair. We go into joy and say, how great a Savior that he would save someone like me. I thought I sinned really bad when I was a non-believer. It wasn't until I got saved I discovered how bad I was. Romans 5.20 says this. It's a verse you're familiar with. You don't have to turn there. Some of you said, because I'm not, so good. The law came to increase the trespass. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So the law comes in and shows us that we're a sinner, and we say, God, I'm a sinner. What in the world am I supposed to do? And God says, I've got more grace for you. Romans 8 says, therefore, though, we don't just merely live in sin to enjoy more grace. He says, now we no longer have to appease God by living a perfect life. We appease God by walking by the Spirit. Meaning this, I no longer have to impress God with how good I am. God has made me good, so I now want to walk the way he would have me walk, which is by the Spirit. Let me put it this way. Grace is only experienced by sinners. The righteous, or maybe we should say it this way, the self-righteous have no idea what grace is like. 
And he says to us, you have been freed because someone died. Remember your freedom. And we do that in a number of ways. We get together every Sunday to remind ourselves of the gospel. We need the gospel. We need his hope. He has redeemed me once for all, but many of us, just the people sitting in chairs today, need to be reminded of that today. Did anybody sin this week? Was it just me? One other guy raised his hand. I won't point him out. Todd. No, I'm kidding. I, I said I wouldn't point you. Do we have to be reminded that grace saves sinners again today? Yes, we do. Jesus saved us knowing the sin we would do this week. Grace is only experienced by sinners. The righteous don't have it. The difference between the Egyptians and the people of Israel was not that one was better than the other. The difference between the Egyptians and the people of Israel is one group put blood on their door and say, I need a savior, the other didn't. And we need to remember that, especially when we tend to think we're something special. Three or four closing thoughts. You are free because someone died. Are you still clinging to your old, dead ways? Is this place become too much of your home even in Christ? Do we cling to this place? Is this where we find our meaning? Is this where we find our purpose? Is it our families and our work and our success and our hopes in this place alone? Those things are blessings of God to be enjoyed, but they cannot bear the weight of our soul. Our hope is in Christ alone. We need to live a life here of haste. Coat on, shoes on, saying he's coming anytime. I want, if today is the day, I want to find him, I want him to find me busy about the things of his kingdom. You are free because someone died. We ought to remember to know Christ is to know every single day how much more I need him. Here's the thing I don't know if you noticed this. When you get closer to a light, you can see better, can't you? Further you are away, I only know this because I'm getting older and to read the prescription bottles, I have to hold it right next to the light bulb on the stove uh, light. I've told it right next to it, and now I've passed a new threshold where I have to hand it to my son and say, would you read this thing for me? <laughs> and I, I trust he's going to read it right and not mess with me. <laughs> this is the thing. We think, oh, once I'm saved, then I'm going to spend the rest of my life discovering how much better I can be. No, no, it's the other way. As I'm saved, I get closer and closer to Christ. The light shines brighter and brighter. And that last day on planet Earth, as you draw closer to Christ, you're going to say, I cannot believe he saved a guy like me. Because the closer we get, the more we realize we need his saving. Finally this, you are free because someone died. You need Jesus. For those of us who are believers, we need to be reminded of that again, again today. We need him not just because we're in church. We need him when we go to work tomorrow. We need him when we take kids to school tomorrow. We need him when we face the doctor this week. We need Jesus. Whatever we think the answer is, it's not really because our hope is in another place. But mostly I would say this to those of us who still aren't hearing the music right. Somehow you've convinced yourself that this is silly. So maybe you're not going to get it right now, but I would suggest that later on, maybe when you're falling asleep and you're hitting the pillow and you're wondering what your life means, the Bible tells us what it means. It's all about finding peace in God alone. And the only way to do that is to recognize I needed somebody to die for me, and Jesus was the only one who would. 